Welcome to the FDN Thrive Podcast. We interview leaders in the functional health space who bring you the most up-to-date, cutting-edge information for people who have tried it all for their health issues. We hope you enjoy the show. So night shift work is devastating to human health, full stop. There is a big body of research, actual science behind all of this stuff, right? Like my prior life before becoming a licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine is I'm an MIT electrical engineer. I believe in science and facts, love technology where appropriate, but I also believe in people. And I've seen the power of nature and simple things to really make a difference and help people. When it comes to night shift, I'm telling you, it's going completely 180 degrees away from that. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the FDN Thrive Podcast. My name is Fallon Morningstar, and I'm filling in for your usual host, Health Coach Ev, as he recovers from an unexpected wisdom tooth surgery. In this episode, Ev interviewed Dr. Beverly Yates, and they discussed everything and anything you need to know about type 2 diabetes. Here is a little bit about Dr. Yates. She is a diabetes expert and author who has over 27 years experience of working with those who struggle with blood sugar issues related to type 2 diabetes and prediabetes and feel like nothing works for them. By addressing the lifestyle factors that trigger blood sugar spikes, Dr. Yates creates breakthrough changes in the habits that cause blood sugar issues. This allows her clients to finally get off the blood sugar roller coaster, have more energy, and create the level of health that lets them live the life of their dreams. She is the creator of Yates Protocol, a simple and effective lifestyle based program for people who have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes to lower blood sugar levels, achieve healthy A1C and fasting blood sugar levels and have more energy to live the life they want to. She's worked with thousands of people, helping them to lower their blood sugar levels to a healthy range and get control over their health. She was chosen as the lead doctor for a new three-doctor panel TV show on ABC. They filmed two versions of of the pilot episode, and the network decided not to greenlight the series. Her journey in Hollywood was fun and taught her a lot of things. When most of us in the health space think about type 2 diabetes, our mind immediately goes to carbs, especially those processed ones. But is there more to type 2 diabetes epidemic in our modern world? You bet. And that is exactly what Ev and Dr. Yates dive into today. Here is the interview. Hey there, Dr. Yates. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I thank you so much for this opportunity to share the work that I do in the world. And I'm really a fan of you and your work, the efforts that we put forward. We're all trying to help people live better lives. Absolutely. And that's what's so cool about the natural and functional space is like fundamentally we're doing the same things, but then we can kind of hone in on these specific conditions and become, you know, experts in that area. And we have not had a single person on yet really diving into diabetes. I mean, certainly I'm sure half the people have dealt with either pre-diabetes or uh, unknown diabetes in one way or another. And just there was other things going on. So they didn't even mention that. But I think this is something that is really important to hone in on because I know that, I mean, 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. And a lot of the times that is at the very least going to be a risk factor for pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Um, And at its worst, of course, it's actually going to be um, very much related to it. You're going to have the condition. So I think before we get into that, I want to start just like I would with anyone else on this podcast. I want to know what Dr. Yates's health was like, you know, throughout your life. And maybe it was a family member that got you motivated. But what I'm getting at is it's very rare that I find someone in this space that didn't have personal health issues or, you know, very close family members with health issues. So to the degree that you're comfortable, I'd love to talk about that if that's relevant to you. Sure. Happy to, you know, start the conversation there. So with this, you know, my mom and dad had separated um, after they were married when I was an infant and I was, you know, just so young and I didn't really get to know my dad's side of my family until I was an adult and reclaimed that relationship. Meanwhile, I had no idea that my father's side of my family had such a problem specifically with diabetes in particular type two diabetes. One of my Um, aunts and uncles with a type 1 diabetic, you know, and most of the rest of the folks suffered from type 2 diabetes. And just watching diabetes um, run like a wrecking ball through the family, 
was, you know, a moment to pause as I was reconnected with uh, my birth family of origin on my dad's side, because, you know, A, I didn't know, B, that meant I had a risk, and C, I could see that some of the healthy lifestyle things I had been doing, you know, I'd been a lifelong athlete, I played sports in grade school, in high school, all the way through college. In fact, I played actively team sports, like, you know, basketball, soccer, thing like that, all the way till about age 38 when I found that I was pregnant with uh, my first child. In fact, that's how I figured out I was pregnant, right? I was suddenly so tired. I couldn't move. <laughs> my feet were glued to the ground. I couldn't rebound, you know. I was like, what's <laughs> going on? And so I'd be 20 minutes into a workout, kind of turning green. My energy's gone. And I'm like, what is happening? Am I getting old at 38? <laughs> nope. That was a baby trying to let me know <laughs> that things were changing. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, I, so in terms of my own investigation and focus now on type 2 diabetes, you know, it's one of those things where with the patients that I've served over the years and the people I've helped, it's over 3,000 people now, right, that I've worked with the Yates Protocol, the distillation of my clinical experience to help them with these blood sugar issues. I realize of all the chronic illnesses, you know, this is the one that's becoming the national epidemic. As much as heart disease is number one in terms of reasons why people leave this earth early who are in the U.S., Type 2 diabetes is on track to swamp the impact of heart disease and displace it as the biggest killer and certainly the biggest cause of other serious diseases if we don't do something about it. And the impact it has on people's lives, you know, it could be women who are in a time of perimenopause and in a transition to true menopause. It can be men when they're younger who suddenly feel that their vitality has gone out the window and they're wondering why they have this growing amount of uh, belly fat, and they may not drink beer. People stereotypically decades ago would say, oh, beer drinker. These days, that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be someone who's approaching retirement, a man or a woman who's finding that suddenly their blood sugar is just taken off like a rocket. Could be people who are stressed, people who aren't sleeping well. There's lots of paths to prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. I want to really dispel any myths people have around there being this assumption that people party their way to diabetes. That is not always true. Okay, wow. And one of the other things, too, that kind of makes this even more confusing, and I should have said this in the beginning because I almost inappropriately kind of made it seem like you have to be overweight to deal with this stuff, although, of course, that's very common. I remember when I was a kid, I got my blood sugar tested, and Mm -hmm. 17, I mean, as a kid, I was probably at that time, 150 pounds, six foot tall. So not only am I not overweight, I'm like a twig. I'm super skinny. Mm -hmm. And my fasting blood sugar was already in the range of a pre-diabetic actually quickly moving into what would have been type two diabetes. So this is so much more, like you said, than just a beer belly or something like that, or partying your way into it, right? This is an epidemic from our modern lifestyle, probably, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Our lifestyle's are really a large part of this and the ways in which we aren't supported around making those healthy choices or being able to keep from falling completely off a cliff if we are experiencing a lot of severe stress or other pressures. You know, I'm looking at the realities of the changes for so many people around lifestyle with the the pandemic, whether people are more sedentary, if they're able to stay home and, you know, hide from the virus, or if they were a frontline worker and that much more exposed, many people in different ways, they have so much more stress right now. And mm-hmm. I am sadly going to predict right here that instead of it being a little bit more than one in three people in the U.S. have type 2 diabetes, we're going to head towards one in two. In other words, it's going to be that much more common. I think the conditions of the pandemic will shove more people towards pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes without their knowledge, without their permission, without their consent. I just think it's going to happen that way. And we need to have a plan to help people avoid this outcome for the simple reason that this is an awfully devastating problem and it's expensive. It costs people their lives, it costs people their health and joy, and it costs people money to manage. Absolutely. I think you just hit on such a great side point too about this being expensive because I'm certainly, certainly, certainly not getting political on this podcast. That's not the (laughs) point. But I always hear people arguing about healthcare and what is right, universal or, you know, private, whatever it might be. I'm like, how can we even have this conversation of which is better when we don't have a healthcare system and we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lifestyle diseases, right? Preach. No, that, preach. 
<laughs> yeah. That is not to say that when when I say lifestyle disease, I always want to be clear. That's not to say that it's everyone's fault because no. many people are ignorant to what's going on. My 17-year-old self yeah. didn't know what I was doing wrong. Oh, yeah. I um, mean, that, that's a great point you make. It's like, you know, of all the chronic illnesses, type 2 diabetes is the one that people love to beat people up about. There's a lot of blame and shame. You know, that's associated with this, Evan. Thank you for bringing that up. I 100% agree with you. We're not trying to blame anybody. That's my whole point around that these kinds of things can be completely a surprise. And people don't understand how these other factors, like, say, stress or chronic poor sleep, night work, night shift, and shift work in general can destroy blood sugar and hormonal balance in general. Insulin's a hormone. So Mm -hmm. if it's an insulin issue, it's a hormone. Anything that can disrupt hormones can show up. Um, this way and diabetes, blood sugar regulation is really sensitive to these things. And that's the good news. And it's the bad news. <laughs> that lifestyle, you have some hope of being able to make those positive changes and do a great job for yourself and change your history and perhaps reverse type two diabetes. On the other side of that, if you don't get a handle on the lifestyle, then you're just going to get into more and more kinds of medications, prescription medications, and they are expensive, that you will need to use and all the complications that go with it as you get worse. If your doctor is saying to you, oh, let's just watch your blood sugar numbers. Oh, it's okay. Let's just watch it. No, that's not a plan. That's watching the train wreck in slow motion. You need an active plan in which you are the star. You are the participant. That's how we help you heal. Ooh, watching the train wreck in slow motion. I like this a lot. Um, well, I don't literally like it, but you know what I mean? I like that image for people because you're right. I mean, that's what happens. I had P- our friends go to doctors with like thyroid antibodies and mm-hmm. because they didn't have a disease yet, said, oh, well, we'll just watch it. Yeah. Like, well, what are we watching for it? For it to become a disease? <laughs> you know, What do I need to do to get this under control now? Yeah. So let's just start with something. I mean, because there's so much to unpack here. Let's start with the basics because we do have all types of people listening to this podcast. Podcast, although it is focused more towards the consumer. You know, they're not necessarily doctors or health yeah. professionals like myself. Sure. They're people that are out there doing their research, probably pretty intelligent and unfortunately kind of hopeless because they've been maybe not treated so well by the normal healthcare system. So just for a really basic question, uh, Dr. Yates, what is prediabetes and what is type 2 diabetes? And then maybe we can even touch on what type 1 diabetes is because those are all three different things, especially the type 2 to type 1. Sure. That's a great question. So let's start there and not assume what people know and don't know. So let's start with type 1. Type 1 diabetes is what I think of as classic diabetes, i.e. the pancreas for that person does no longer or, yeah, you, you would safely say it no longer makes insulin at all, period, full stop. Classically, that was something that was thought to be only that happened to children. And uh, the pancreas, for whatever reason, could have been under autoimmune attack. And the ability of the pancreas to make insulin from a specific set of cells in the pancreas was um, compromised. And that production of insulin from infancy somewhere in their early childhood went down to zero. People who are type 1 diabetics absolutely positively need insulin for the rest of their lives. We don't currently have any treatments to help them restore their own natural ability to make insulin. So lots of love to anybody with type 1 diabetes. I often say that type 1 diabetes and any other kind of blood sugar issue should have different names. So it's much clearer what we're talking about. Now, in the case of prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, I think of those as a spectrum of blood sugar dysregulation. And so type uh, 2 diabetes typically is diagnosed when the A1C, a particular number, fancy name is high glycosylated hemoglobin. When hemoglobin A1C is 6.4 or higher, typically that's when a person is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. The pancreas typically still makes insulin. The insulin that their body is making is no longer as effective in grabbing up their blood sugar called glucose and making it available inside the cell for energy. People who have this often start to have problems with their weight and they tend to gain weight more easily as one function of insulin resistance, i.e. the insulin they're making is not as effective with glucose and therefore we call it insulin resistance. And so they start to store their energy, their blood sugar, the the excess blood sugar as fat. That's why people gain weight that way. Now, sometimes people who have blood sugar problems can be quite lean too, who are type two and they can't buy a pound. It can be a real paradox. Um, For prediabetes, that 
is the lower end of the spectrum. And that's usually measured at about 5.8, maybe 5.7, depending on where you are regionally in the U.S. That tends to be the lower cutoff to about 6.2, 6.3 for a measurement for that A1C number. So a lot of the um, pharmaceutical medications, other things will have ads and stuff, their promo and say, know your numbers and A1C and things like that. So the A1C is a long-term measurement of blood sugar control. That's why you repeat that test three to four times over the course of a year. Doing it weekly doesn't make sense. Doing it every 90 to 120 days, every three to four months does. It takes time for that number to move. Okay. All right. And I think that's a really useful thing because again, diabetes is thrown around so much. Anyone, even not in the health space, has at least heard the word before. Mm -hmm. But actually defining these things and what the differences are is great because even though the problem is conceptually similar with type 2 diabetes and type 1. I I just can't stress enough to people that these are largely different issues. Ironically, because I mean, Dr. Yates, you know this, with autoimmunity in the functional health space, we see people go into remission all the time, right? There's so many autoimmune conditions that go into remission. Yeah, like rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, sure, any of the itis, but not type 1. It's a different thing, different game. Right, exactly. So I think it's ironic because we have type 2 diabetes, which is probably one of the most straightforward chronic diseases to resolve when we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then we have type 1 diabetes being an autoimmune. And ironically, that's like the hardest autoimmune disease to actually resolve. I, I've really actually never heard stories, like you said. I mean, I think it might just be impossible. Um, I'll yeah. never say never, but right. that is not something I hear of at all that people, oh, I don't have this anymore. I, I haven't yeah. seen that occur. Okay. Some of the technologies and, and things I see on the horizon in the world of medicine with gene therapies and other things, I'm hopeful that there will be some treatments available that can really help type 1 diabetics to restore the uh, ability of the pancreas to make insulin. But my goodness, here in 2021, we are not there yet. So anyone who claims they've got some sort of a cure for type 1, that's not true. Not at all. Now, what you can help somebody with type 1 diabetes do is live a much healthier, much better quality of life. And many people, in this case, they wear insulin pumps. They're probably using a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. And if they're eating really healthfully, exercising regularly, doing resistance training, put the metabolic demand on their muscles, you know, getting great sleep and managing their stress, you know, I think that their longevity is very much positively impacted and their quality of life along with quantity of life is much better than it would have been, say, 50 years ago. We know so much more now. Well said. And yeah, because it's still a thing that affects people greatly to this day. I had um, an acquaintance from middle school, high school, and I remember him sharing, unfortunately, four or five years ago, like his older brother, who was not even 30 years old, passed away. And mm-hmm. what was the cause? Well, type one diabetic, that something happened, there was some complication. This is a real thing, folks. And this is still affecting people right now. So yes. I love what you just said. You know, the whole goal is to make them live a better quality of life. And then hopefully, eventually, we'll get to something where we actually can support them in a major way. And again, I think we'll get there in Western medicine and it's just going to take time. And this is why we like combining the best of both worlds in our in our world of functional medicine. Right. We're not going to just say, oh, it's all natural all the time or all Western. It's a beautiful combination of both. Let's get people the best results that we can. Absolutely. You know, we all have our moments, places where we shine. And I think that the more we keep our patients and clients at the center of the treatment and make sure that everybody's on the same page to help people, um, the, the better we can serve the folks that we are called to serve. Sure thing. All right. Now, you had mentioned a few things, including even like night shift work that I was so happy you went there already because I'm really big on like light circadian rhythm and the impacts on health. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, because I kind of just want to go over some of the causes of this epidemic of diabetes and dysregular blood sugar, let's just start with the basics, right? The sure. food types of things. What is it for those that don't understand that we are doing with our food and nutrition now that is having such a great effect on our blood sugar that maybe our ancestors weren't doing, you know, thousands of years ago, or maybe even a few hundred years ago. Like what's going on? Evan, what a great question. Oh my gosh. You know, if our, uh, even our grandparents and great grandparents could look at us now, they would be shaking their heads, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's so many differences. We have 24 seven access to food that is completely unheard of in human history. We also sit on our behinds, most of us way more than we used to, even those of us who are active and who work out, think about it, you know, you have to regiment it, right? Otherwise it wouldn't happen. That wasn't the case then. People did a lot more physical, actual labor, and they did their own work. Um, Very different for today's 
lifestyles. In addition, and this is not a small part, right? If we talk about what we think happens for human health, let's say we have some semblance of um, agreement around the concept that 30% of your health is determined by your genes, right? The cards you were dealt. And 70% perhaps is determined about your, by the environment, like your lifestyle and things like that. Things you may have some control over and can influence. So that might be how you play the cards you're dealt, so to speak. Well, if that's true, that's great. But in today's world, there is so much push towards being unhealthy. Why? Because it's frankly more profitable. People make a lot more money off of unhealthy food. It has you coming back for more. It wants you to eat more at any given time you're eating and to eat the kinds of things that are going to make you sick and often lead to things like high blood pressure, high blood sugar, not being able to sleep well, feeling miserable in the skin you're in, etc. right? Like what a setup for failure. Our, our grandparents and great-grandparents, I'm telling you, they would just be shocked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it is so strange because I was just talking to someone else about this recently. It was more like a, a keto type of conversation and mm-hmm. intermittent fasting. But mm-hmm. the point was, you know, he's saying, hey, you should intermittently fast from food. Now, whatever, fine. My whole thing is I just can't believe that at the same exact moment on this earth, we have people that are dying from starvation. And then we have people that are dying from having too much food. How the heck did, I mean, this is a philosophical type of thing and a societal question, but like, how the heck did we get there where we have these two extremes going on at once? It is crazy. It's completely crazy. Yeah, I I agree. It's quite the paradox, you know, Um, (laughs) people are dying of eating too much. They are dying of too much food, but I would, I would argue they're dying of too many poor quality, low quality calories and not enough nutrient density. They're not getting nourished and that's why they're overeating. Their body's desperate for nutrients and it's hoping for them. You know, it's one of the reasons people like chocolate. Chocolate is a wonderful food. It's nutrient dense, but if you add a whole lot of sugar and other crap to it, then you've lost the benefit of chocolate, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The good news for me is I found out because I used to eat a ton of milk chocolate as a kid. I'm addicted either way. I eat the pure cacao, like literally nothing. It's just pure cacao. Um, (laughs) So um, I don't know if that justifies my addiction, but nonetheless, (laughs) a little better than Hershey's, I think. So Now, cool. I really want to talk about that night shift thing because, you know, you went over that quick because this is something you're an expert in, but I got to go back there because some people might be listening saying, what night shift can affect blood sugar and even be something that impacts diabetes? Let's dive into that because this is probably a brand new concept for so many people. Okay. All right. Let's go there. So night shift work um, is devastating to human health. Full stop. There is a big body of research, actual science behind all of this stuff, right? Like my prior life before becoming a licensed doctor of naturopathic medicine is I'm an MIT electrical engineer. I believe in science and facts, love technology where appropriate, but I also believe in people. And I've seen the power of nature and simple things to really make a difference and help people. When it comes to night shift, I'm telling you, it's going completely 180 degrees away from that. And the thing about night shift is that it disrupts your circadian rhythm, obviously, because you're upside down. You know, we're not intended to be bats. We're not supposed to be nocturnal like that, not to that degree. And even those of us who are night owls are still, you know, not a bat. It's not the same thing. So your hormonal system, your endocrine system is completely cattywampus if you're on night shift. Your body's ability to uh, to release its uh, stress hormones via principally cortisol regulation, stress regulation is compromised. Your blood sugar regulation just goes to, you know what, in a minute. I mean, quickly. Sometimes the cure for someone who's struggling with blood sugar is to get them off of night shift. I have a person I just was started working with a few weeks ago that I'm still sitting on her about this. I'm like, until you change that night shift, I don't think this is the time for us to work together. It's going to be just too hard. Um, people will have weight problems. They'll start to gain weight and become really obese if they are on shift work, especially if they're on steady last out as it's called or night shift. I don't know anybody who stays healthy with that. Their moods, their, um, Joie de vivre, their, their joy of life, it just all goes in the tank and swirls the, the toilet bowl together. Night shift destroys health. It destroys a lot of things about health. So we've talked about blood pressure, blood sugar, weight, mood, sex drive, libido. Also, that's very sensitive, obviously, as part of your hormonal regulation. That's another thing that goes right in the tank with night work. Um, I, I don't have anything positive to say about night work. I think if you can avoid it, you should. If you can make a change, you really, 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 really should. Because the rest of the world's on a different rhythm. It's just disruptive. 
Yeah. And what we do is, I mean, we have financial struggles out there for so many people and we lure them in saying, hey, we'll give you a few extra bucks per hour if you're lucky by coming in and basically sacrificing your health to go do this. And it's the saddest thing. And then even tougher is our healthcare workers who because of the amount of people we have and the disease in our country, and again, most modernized societies in today's world, you really can't avoid having some healthcare workers working all night, right? Because there's people having heart attacks at 2 a.m. And all of a sudden, they got to come in the hospital. I mean, I don't know uh, the answer to that problem, but I think you said it best. It's like, if you have the ability to get out of there, get out of there and yeah. go find something else yeah. that two extra dollars or three or even $10 hour extra and uh, $10 extra an hour, excuse me, is not worth the time you're taking away from your life and the impact on your health. I don't think. Yeah. My, my only thoughts about it, because you're right, there are times when people have um, heart attacks and things in the middle of the night and babies famously, because it's a quieter time, they tend to show up then. Um, so you wouldn't be able to have, let's say, your healthcare, as an example, your healthcare staff go to zero, but maybe people tag team. And so no one has more than two to three weeks over the course of the year of night shift work. Just a thought. I don't know if it's possible, but I think it would be a kindness because then people would have time to recover and they could go back and, and, you know, most people are resilient enough that that would be okay if it was two to three weeks over the course of 52 weeks rather than years and decades of this. It's just a destroyer. I've seen it. I've seen healthcare professionals blown up over this along with other kinds of workers, police officers, EMTs, firefighters, the uh, people who work in the police and emergency response radio rooms, um, people who do cleaning and janitorial and environmental engineering services at night, all of it. I'm telling you, it's a disaster. I think you nailed it when you talked about the two to three week thing. I love that. And you know what? It's a better solution than I have. So I do think it's a valid one. I think it is possible. And you know what? Even if it's not possible at this moment, we kind of have to make it possible because the way that we're going right now isn't working with our health. Like we're going to need to make some changes and look at those careers you just listed off. We have some of the people that help our society the most and we're killing them because we're forcing them to have to be available all the time like that. You know, again, a, a bigger question there than just the diabetes topic, I suppose, but a really important one. And hopefully someone out there listens to that idea. I love it. Yeah. Just tag team two to three weeks. You're right. Most people, especially if they're going to be healthy the rest of the time, they probably could totally do that out of the year and bounce right back. So um, great points there. Now we talked about the food, the night shift type of thing. Are there any other things that you look at as being major causes of this or contributing factors rather to this diabetes epidemic that we're seeing? Um, I think the fact that we uh, have many kinds of ways that people work where they are forced to sit or otherwise be still for an extended period of time. You know, the fact that people can have factories set up for certain um, large companies where they're in a warehouse environment and they have to move, say, packages along and every eight to nine seconds, and that's being measured, and they don't even get time for a bathroom break. (laughs) That's not a good situation. Just the stress of that. Like, what? You know, it just, it doesn't make sense. It's unnecessary. Um, It's cruel. And I I think ultimately it will backfire. But I also understand that if someone loses their health at any kind of job like that, they probably are going to wind up um, unemployed. And so then they have even more stress and the situation is worse. Another thing that can magnify this is if someone lives in a food desert, if they don't have access to healthy food in their community, easily access to healthy food, to have community gardens, things like that. And also making sure that your taste buds have a chance to reset. Sometimes people are raised in a household where all the foods are processed. The family has habitually typically shopped from the very center of the store, where often the most nutrient poor and calorie rich, salt rich, you know, added salt, added sugar um, items are available in the center of the aisles uh, in the supermarket, at least in the US, that's a typical pattern. Most of the healthy foods are on the perimeter. They're on the outer aisles of the store. And the stuff that you want to avoid is usually uh, in the middle. It's the prepackaged food. There's just a lot of different things. Like like if we had a bulleted list, you know, when we said the top 10, like this would certainly be a factor, right? If you're used to eating food that is not good for you, and that is what you have culturally come to think of as tasting good, what we call the SAD, the Standard American Diet. Yes. That, you know, it's a problem, right? You're going to have to re-educate your taste buds. Good news is they turn over pretty quick, anywhere from about 10 to 
21, 22 days, you got a brand new set of cells on your tongue. So you have a chance to keep moving the, the goalposts in a good way, shifting what they like so they get to become acquainted with healthy foods and how things taste fresh. Like when you bite into that crisp, crunchy celery and you can taste its natural saltiness. Well, if you come to enjoy that, you don't want to add salt to your food. You don't need to, right? If you eat fresh apples and you bite into them and you get that wonderful mix of the tang along with the sweet, yay, you don't need to sprinkle sugar on it, right? But if you can't taste that, you're probably going to add sugar. Even you may know you shouldn't, but your brain will be used to that extra hit of sugar. What did you say it is? It's 10 to 21 days that the cells turn over on the, uh, for the taste buds? Yes. Yes. That's what research has shown. Yep. Okay. This makes so much sense. I mean, I figured there was something like that, but I'd never taken the time to go in depth because I remember when I got into the health space, one of the first things I did was cut out like added sugar, except from a few small fruits like blueberries for Mm -hmm. 30 days. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'm eating a sweet potato and it's like, I actually like it. You know, it's not not enough sugar. It feels good. And if I ate a bunch of Hershey Kisses again or something like those are my total addiction, I would feel nauseated. I'm like, what happened that I now love sweet potato and I can't eat those anymore? So it's a wonderful thing. Like people think, oh, I don't want to eat these bland foods or these foods that just don't taste good. It's like, no, nature did not design it like that. Unfortunately, humans are designing things that are supposed to just light up your brain and make you addicted to their processed food because they're not caring about your health, unfortunately. Evan, that's a great point you make. Light up your brain with these addictive foods. You're right. That rush, that that hit of dopamine that people get from those chemically Frankenstein foods. They are just like they're they're fake foods. They're pseudo foods, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even a food anymore when it has that many other things added to it to overstimulate the tongue and blow up your brain to think, oh my God, I must eat that. You know, when I was a kid, people did not eat bags of chips. They did not eat pints and half gallons of ice cream in one sitting. That's a relatively new thing. And I hope it doesn't become normalized. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I want to transition into the Yates protocol because this sure. is something that obviously is for people that are dealing with these conditions. And I would never ask someone to give away their secret sauce, no pun intended, on the (laughs) show here. But I mean, from a conceptual standpoint, that's really interesting to me that you've created something. So what is the overview of the Yates Protocol? Sure. Thank you for asking. The Yates Protocol is the distillation of my 27 plus years of clinical work with people who have blood sugar issues, specifically when they're looking to get control of blood sugar, using those four lifestyle pillars of nutrition, having a meal plan that is uh, tasty and culturally uh, sensitive so that it makes sense within the context of how people are used to eating. Because I found if you get people onto eating things that are completely foreign and they don't think taste good, they're not going to be successful because they're going to revert back to what they know. So you want to make what they've got healthy. Then we can introduce other kinds of foods. That's how people are successful and stay there long term. So I'm just going to put that out there for free. Um, The second part of that pillar is, of course, exercise to get regular movement in um, and make sure it's the kind of movement they can sustain if people are injured, if they have, if they're waiting for joint replacements, if they've recently been in a a trauma, etc. Not everyone is able to exercise and I 100% honor that and recognize it. My protocol does not require exercise. So if you are the kind of person who's been told for years to exercise and you physically truly are unable, I got you. Don't worry about it. Um, Stress (laughs) and then sleep. Stress relief and understanding what triggers stress and how stress can hijack blood sugar is so important. Stress is a bully, Evan. It grabs people by their genetic collar, slams them right up against the wall and shakes out whatever is hiding in that genomic tree. That's what's going to express. That's what shows up for people, right? That's where the family illnesses tend to pop up is with chronic unrelenting stress. And then sleep. Many people don't understand how sensitive sleep is to blood sugar and sensitive sleep is to high blood pressure. And when we get the sleep thing untangled and get them to having good night's sleep night after night, oh, the transformation. So much healing comes from that foundational element of sleep. Awesome. And when we're talking about sleep, I mean, of course, one of the things I think most people listening to this podcast would at least be somewhat familiar. To get good sleep, we need to you know, kind of regulate our light. And one of the things that we're not doing enough of is getting out in the sun. And one of the things we're doing too much of is getting too much artificial light. Now, this is relatively new science. So I'm kind of just going off on a side point here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. Have you seen the research that is showing that like artificial blue light and even green light actually raises our blood sugar? Are you familiar with that at all? Or is that? Yes, I'm so okay. glad you're bringing this up. You know, yeah. something I did earlier this week was I changed the settings here on my MacBook. So it <laughs> yes. automatically 
quickly go to the warmer end of the light spectrum, get rid of that blue light at a certain time of day. <laughs> I mean, who what a, there are so many things that we can just adjust that or that yeah. we don't know are bad for us. And I keep going back to the same thing. Like I will continue to study. Obviously, you seem like an incre- incredibly intelligent person. You are just rattling stuff off today. And we love learning and that's great. But you know what? I'm almost like, why do I have to keep doing this? Clearly, the answer is ancestral living. I was supposed to be outside as much as possible. Yes. I was supposed to be eating real food. And I learned all this complicated science and the biology and biochemistry and everything just points back to, hey, well, wait a second. You don't need to get artificial blue light. You just go out in the sun and get the perfect blend of the light spectrum. I mean, nature had our back. That's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mother nature is always looking out for us um, in so many ways. And when she's annoyed with us, she lets us know too, right? <laughs> Yeah, certainly. When we're talking about diabetes in the functional space, one of the things, and I already mentioned this kind of, I hear coming up often is this talk about intermittent fasting and keto. Now, Mm -hmm. I believe in these things as general principles and keto is something we should go into every now and then. Intermittent Mm -hmm. fasting probably should be, I believe, an integral uh, integral part of our lives. Mm -hmm. What place do you think that this has, if any, um, or these two things have, if any, with the diabetes conversation? Should people be doing these things or can you not just jump right into them? Hey, this is a great, great question. Thank you for asking it. So let's dive in here, you know, and peel back the layers of the onion. You know, my point of view, honestly, Evan, around intermittent fasting or IF is that it's ancestral for sure and around the world. It's one of the things that we see encoded in so many different spiritual and religious traditions. They have intermittent fasting baked in. Like there's a reason why this keeps coming up for thousands of years, right? Kind of like what's old is new again. And so now people have packaged it up and they call it intermittent fasting, but people have been doing fasting for all sorts of reasons, whether it is to purify, detoxify, or to ascend, whatever the reasons might be. It could be to help people to heal from specific kinds of problems. And it's well-documented in the literature of the world, in the songs, the poems, the odes, the essays, the um, beliefs and habits and things that have been passed down within family groups. So I'm a fan of intermittent fasting, particularly for people who have type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. If someone's type 1 diabetic, they might need to really be thoughtful because they want to be sure their blood sugar doesn't drop too low because that can be such a problem. But for those who are struggling with type 2 and pre-diabetes, I think it's it's a great thing. And I'll talk about type 3 a little bit later, type 3 diabetes, because I think that's definitely something we should mention today. Now for keto, I think that keto is helpful if someone is a carbotarian. Carbotarians are the ones who eat lots and lots and lots of starch. All they want is something starchy, lots of carbs, lots of chips. And they usually want simple, unhealthy kinds of carbohydrates, not the long, complex burning things like chickpeas and lentils that are awesome. That's usually not where people are stuck. I don't know how the people get stuck there, right? Because they're very fulfilling. They sure. have something that's going to... Uh, invoke people to be addictive with it, right? Whereas simple sugar absolutely invokes addiction. So those are those are my thoughts. Keto is fantastic, particularly for people who have also neurologic problems, uh, like say epilepsy, other things It can be tra- just transformative. What I have seen with keto is sometimes when people come out of keto, if they had any um, predisposition or tendency towards food uh, addiction or disordered eating, Um, problems like that, they need to be thoughtful and have a layered plan so that they don't trigger um, issues around that because sometimes people definitely can can fall flat. And I think there's a risk there as well with intermittent fasting if people tend to be all in on things and then not have a good transition plan for when they aren't necessarily actively in the midst of a particular kind of intermittent fasting. Excellent. With the intermittent fasting thing, I just had one more question because I know you said type 1 diabetics. Yeah, I mean, you really got to be careful with that. Is there any point where a type 2 diabetic, because most people, this is how intermittent fasting goes. They read about it. They get excited. I know this is what I did four and a half years ago. And (laughs) instantly the next day, I went for the 16-8, 16 hours fasted, eight-hour eating window. Um, I felt hangry. I was a little irritable. And then after a week, it got better. And I actually felt really good and I enjoyed it. Is there any point, like are there extreme type 2 diabetics out there that that could be dangerous for or are generally people safe to do something like that? And of course, guys, this is not medical advice here. Let's not be silly. I'm just asking for your opinion, kind of colleague to colleague here right now. 
Yes, thank you for that disclaimer. As I yes. to say that. <laughs> yeah, this is an opinion thing, a, a colleague to colleague. So that I've seen for type two diabetics, it's been fine. There's usually a few days, up to a week or so, of adjustment, and people can indeed be hangry. That unfortunate combination of hungry and angry. So you might want to let your loved ones know you might be acting up. <laughs> but in that transition, your body is definitely changing gears, and that's okay. And what's on the other side is better blood sugar regulation, perhaps better blood pressure. And, and moods more even, you get off of that blood sugar roller coaster. And that's always a good thing. And if you have issues with insulin resistance, you know, you can break through that. If you're the kind of person who follows all kinds of healthy regimens and you watch other people in your life, you know, have their uh, weight come under better regulation and they lose weight, um, their blood pressure gets better. And you're the one for whom not a whole lot happens. A sustained um, a, attention to an intermittent fasting plan might really be your path that will work. This is great to know. This is great to know. That sometimes people hit one heck of a weight loss plateau, um, particularly women more so. And even around the time of menopause and after menopause, this can become a quite a rock to move. Men too, after the time of andropause, when they have naturally a lower production of testosterone, they may find it's very hard to, to lose weight and have just that profound insulin resistance. And intermittent fasting can be your friend. But you're right, Evan. You know, if you just jump in there with no kind of a transition you didn't get ready. You know, I tell people, look, if you're going to make a big health change, like let's say you're eating all kinds of stuff and then suddenly you decide to get on the health train and you want to do intermittent fasting. Well, think of it as spring cleaning. Now, listen, folks, if you do spring cleaning at home, if you had this as a, a ritual in your family growing up, did your mom and dad nail shut all the doors and windows, then go around clean the whole house, get everything all spiffy, and then just leave the trash at the doors and windows? Like, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Good analogy. Good, frequent bowel movements. You have good fiber on board. Green leafy veggies, lots of water and hydration, right? So that the fiber can do its goodness in the intestines and move that stuff out with the bowels. Same thing with being well hydrated so you can urinate and pee and just let those toxins go. Good breathing practices so that your lungs can respire and expire, get that air, that oxygen exchange going. So carbon dioxide is going out, oxygen's coming in. And your skin, you want to make sure your largest organ is well cared for. So you're going to do spring cleaning. Think about those routes of elimination, get them in good shape. Then by all means, I think it's a fine thing to do. I think it's a gift you can give yourself. You had mentioned the type three diabetes thing. And you know what? I'll be honest. Had you not mentioned that, I would have completely skipped over something like this for this podcast. And I appreciate um, you bringing that up. I'm like slightly familiar. So I'm going to leave that to you, Dr. Yates. Can you describe what exactly that is and what it has to do? Where does it fit in with type one, type two, and type three? Because once again, we're kind of going to a conceptually similar thing, but actually a a much different problem because we're talking more neurological stuff now, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. So type 3 diabetes now is sometimes the way people talk about Alzheimer's disease specifically, which is a subset of the category of dementia um, in terms of cognitive and uh, mental functioning disorders. And with Alzheimer's, sometimes before people have a, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you sometimes will see clinically, that there is a shift in their blood sugar regulation, and they often spend quite a bit of time in pre-diabetes. They don't necessarily always get all the way to type 2 diabetes, and then the next thing you know, this person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so some people think of Alzheimer's disease as being type 3 diabetes, where there is a dysregulation in the brain about how it uses glucose specifically. Um, And there's some shifts there. It's controversial, you know, if you were to look up in the ICD-9, or excuse me, ICD-10 diagnosis codes um, online for type 3 diabetes, you're probably not going to find it. But I think at some point it will be taken up by the conventional medical community that there is a, a pre-condition before someone has a frank expression of Alzheimer's. And some people say, hey, it's this blood sugar dysregulation that you see. Um, I think in the case of my own uh, mother-in-law, just a beloved, wonderful woman, I, I miss her so much. She um, indeed had Alzheimer's and passed away from it. And before she um, had that diagnosis of Alzheimer's, she absolutely had what I would consider to be type three now looking back. And I remember talking with my father-in-law trying because he was concerned about her blood sugar issues. And I was trying to help them at that time with that. She was never truly a type two diabetic. She spent a lot of time with uh, type three kinds of presentations of that blood sugar dysregulation before the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And we'd had some success, but then they moved to assisted living, some other things changed, and he wasn't able to continue to help her with those healthier changes in regimens and supplements. And um, 
then, you know, once he passed it, that really just, just went away. It just, it, it's hard to help people when they don't have a memory. It's just kind of obvious and just to state the obvious. So if anyone's listening to this and you have blood sugar problems and you have a family risk of Alzheimer's, I implore you, please take that seriously. Get a handle on that blood sugar, get blood sugar control. You've got to get off that roller coaster. You talked about, you know, maybe not finding a diagnostic code for this, but what I find interesting too, because I am a man of science, right? I I think there's bad science and good science. We need to be careful, (laughs) right? But definitely am a person of science. Here's the thing though. You can also figure out where the science is going to go by using some common sense. And just because we don't have any diagnostic codes, I think you and I would both agree I've never seen someone with Alzheimer's that was eating a good diet, what I would call a good diet, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, ah, man, I mean, that's one that really affects people. All of these diseases affect people, but that is something that's tough for people to watch and to think that, you know, I'm not going to go with the negative. I'm going to go with the positive instead and think about the fact that there is hope for all those people out there dealing with this, that maybe they can get some memory back or, or feel better or prevent uh, further family members from losing their memory and deteriorating mm-hmm. like that. Cause that's a sad thing to watch. We saw that in our family with uh, Parkinson's and mm-hmm. yes, it was someone that I didn't really have control or influence over, you know, but it was mm-hmm. donuts every day, coffee with extra sugar. I mean, it was just, Oh, I'll, I'll step yeah. off the uh, soapbox before I get on it. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. I got two more quick things for you. Okay. One um, is just, I want to hear about some, maybe like one or two client successes because you've worked with thousands of people, which I think is so impressive. Um, I'm not sure if one in particular out of those sticks out, but really what I'm referring to is someone that comes to you, they're at the end of the rope and they get introduced to this stuff. The natural side is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And you turn their whole story around. Like what's one that's really surprising to people when they hear it maybe. Yeah. So, um, there's two that come to mind. One where people I think will recognize this and, uh, probably saw a smile because this, this one is shockingly common and it doesn't matter what person's socioeconomic status is. Many of the people that I've worked with, some of them are extremely well-educated. They know a lot about whatever it is, is their subject matter expertise. But when we don't know stuff, Evan, we just don't know it, right? So I'm thinking in particular, one particular man that I worked with who, um, super smart guy, impressive degrees, this, that, and the other thing. He had climbed the corporate ladder and then he moved from his job in engineering to the sales department because he just wanted to have more um, compensation, right? That's fine. It's fine to be ambitious. What he didn't understand, believe it or not, was that soda could destroy health. And so he worked in a hard part of the country. He'd be driving around his car, making the sales calls, meeting up with the sales team. They'd fly places. His beverage, his go-to beverage was literally soda. So I just want to say sometimes the most obvious things people don't know. And so he would drink soda like he should have been drinking water. And so in his case, it absolutely caused type 2 diabetes. And a large part of his healing had to do to retraining the palate, his his food desires and tastes, and his tongue so that he wasn't constantly looking for the sugars. And there's great supplements, other ways to help people with that and getting him out of that um, cravings and desire spectrum for sweets because it's a danger zone. It's hard to win the war with your brain when your brain is constantly telling you you want sweets. So that was a great win with him. He went from an A1C when he was first diagnosed of over 10 down to the mid sixes. And then eventually he's been hanging out around 4.8 to 5.2. So that's been a good one. That's a wonderful win. Then another one was a um, woman who had a complicated heart history. She had congestive heart failure in addition to pre-diabetes when we first started to work together. And her family health history with both heart disease and diabetes was awful. And she was terrified. And in her case, with pre-diabetes, she started out at 6.2. And congestive heart failure, you know, this was one of those things, if we didn't get a hold of it, it was just going to get worse. And I've had a lot of success with people with heart disease and in particular congestive heart failure. So her LVEF, left ventricular function, um, left ventricular ejection fraction, rather, started in the teens. So that's not good, right? That's where a person's skin color looks blue or gray, depending on what their base color is. They're not getting enough oxygen out of the heart and around to the rest of the body. And right now, her LVEF is over 60%, and her blood sugar is down to 5.7. I'd love to see it be lower. And she's one of these people who gets on the health bandwagon for a solid six months or so, and then she falls off for two months, and then she gets (laughs) back on the health bandwagon. So I'm trying to work with her now to get her to be a bit more consistent. But the good news is, is that she's out of the danger zone. Her cardiologist is thrilled. And in her journey, part of it was I got her more educated about what a cardiologist really should 
be doing to help her in what's appropriate in uh, a doctor-patient relationship and what's not. The other person had not been listening, had been dismissive and very unprofessional. And I was like, look, you know, you're paying the bills. You don't need to put up with nastiness from anybody. You need somebody who cares about what they're doing and wants you to be well. You don't want somebody whose real goal perhaps is not in your best interest. And she took that literally to, no pun intended, to heart and made a difference and changed her care team. And she's had so much better um, outcomes because now the work that the cardiologist is doing is not undermining her health goals. Sometimes people are at cross purposes and you have to understand people who are about disease management and not healthcare are not going to be your friend on this journey, especially with blood sugar. You want somebody who wants you to get well and stay well, not someone who's like, oh, we'll just watch the train wreck in slow motion, whether Mm -hmm. it's your heart parameters, your blood pressure, you know, your weight, or certainly your blood sugar. You have to take charge of these outcomes because you're the one that's got to live with it. All right. Dr. Yates, if people are listening to this and they're like me, where they're just like, okay, this person knows their stuff. I got to talk to her. Where can people find you? Yeah, they're welcome to go to my website, um, Dr. So D-R Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, Yates, Y-A-T-E-S dot com. And, um, you know, sign up there. They can schedule uh, appointments. They can send emails. They can get downloads. There's all kinds of wonderful resources there. You can certainly follow me on social media. I've got the social media icons at the bottom of the website. I think now my efforts will probably be primarily Instagram. Um, but I would just say, look for me on social, you know, you'll find me on Instagram, Facebook page under my name, DR Beverly Yates, uh, LinkedIn, where I'm there as a women's health expert. Uh, I've got stuff up on, um, YouTube as well. Of course, as always, my friends, we will have those things in the show notes. And now for my final question, the signature one we always end the podcast with. This is super simple, but it is powerful because I want to collect all these one day and kind of make them into a giant podcast or maybe on like an annual basis. Nonetheless, the question is, if Dr. Yates had a magic wand and could get everyone in this world to engage in one health habit, or you could get everyone to stop doing something for their health, what is that thing that you would get everyone to do or not to do? Ooh, what a juicy question, Evan. I love this. Um, I think we'll go for the positive here. I, If I had a magic wand, I would have everyone at each meal of the day eat half their plate leafy green vegetables. That would be my wish for everyone. It could anchor so much goodness for health and it makes sure you get those nutrient, uh, that nutrient density, you know, all those incredible antioxidants and the hydration, the polyphenols, blah, 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 the vitamins, the minerals, all that goodness anchors your blood sugar, gives you a friendly cholesterol cholesterol profile, helps you with moving your bowels, your mood, your skin, you get the whole package from those leafy green vegetables, folks. That would be my wish. <laughs> well, Dr. Yates, I really appreciate that advice because it's highly effective, easy to remember, and very simple for people to implement at the end of the day. It's truly just the simple things done consistently over time that make the biggest difference for our health. That'll be all for today's episode. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the FDN Thrive podcast. My name is Fallon Morningstar, filling in for Health Coach Ev, and you've been listening to his conversation with Dr. Beverly Yates. If you're finding the information on this podcast valuable, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review counts, and it helps more and more people hear this life-changing information. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the FDN Thrive Podcast. If you feel like you've been stuck in the cycle of trial and error when it comes to your health issues, our team can help. Whether you've tried every different diet out there without lasting success, spent way too much money on supplements at your local health food store, or been told that your lab tests are normal despite feeling anything but normal, we have your back. Go to FDNThrive.com and click the Get Started Here button if you're ready to stop playing guessing games with your health. That's FDNThrive.com.